from Renaissance, Beyonce there, Break My Soul. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Our guests today are Richard Keane and Matt Lucas. But I do have Richard Keane in the studio, the CEO of Living Positive Victoria. Richard, welcome to the show. Good afternoon and thanks for the opportunity to come in for a chat. It's great to see you. God, your activism goes back to the early 90s in the living with HIV sphere. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? Yeah, I think so. And uh, the things we're going to discuss today kind of um, in some ways have been a bit triggering for some members of our community that were around that time and saw the stigma around HIV, particularly with the focus on MSM populations. And um, I guess probably what I want to achieve by this chat today is to just um, kind of gently bring that in and, and replace it with some facts and remind people of the resilience and strength that they had in those days and that we can tap into that again with this current issue. Absolutely, which of course is monkeypox. Uh, the monkeypox vaccine rollout has begun in Australia, started last week. Uh, tell us about the eligibility for the vaccine for people living with HIV. Okay, there's a pretty broad eligibility criteria, um, but particularly people from my community, people living with HIV, um, people who uh, generally have more than, might be high risk with a um, range of different partners over a period of time and other things like that. So, um, and particularly from my perspective, um, the priorities in my advocacy with the department have been around, first of all, healthcare workers that are going to be on the front line and potentially exposed to people coming in. And then with the small amounts of vaccination that we've got of us, a, a bit of a priority be put on those people who have struggled to maintain an undetectable viral load over time or might have advanced HIV illness. And I guess the other key message we wanted to get out today, um, because those people may have more severe illness if they come in contact with the virus. Um, but we also have about 10% of the HIV population who are living with HIV undiagnosed. And um, we've seen a big fall off over the last two years, as you could imagine, with regular testing for HIV. And it's just a really great opportunity to remind people that if they think they have had an exposure event, it's really important to go along and get that test because people can live a very happy and healthy long life with HIV today. And um, you can certainly reduce the severity of impacts of uh, things like monkeypox going around if you're aware of your status. Wow, 10% undiagnosed mm. that's big it's huge and it's been sitting like that for a very long time and that's because um, many areas of our population you know in, in urban areas and everything else um, and and great sexual health campaigns around testing every three months for people who are sexually active and a whole range of other things but that's dropped off particularly over the last couple of years as has you know, to be honest, a bit of sexual activity and stuff like that with all our lockdowns and everything else. But um, I advise anybody who thinks that even in the last three or four or five years that they might have had an exposure event um, to go along and, you know, take that anxiety off your mind and go and get that test because it's not like it was 30 or 40 years ago. In relation to monkeypox, are all people with HIV eligible for, for the vaccine? Yes, they are. And how many doses are currently available for the living with HIV community in Victoria? Well, it's broadly distributed amongst MSM because it's not just HIV positive people um, that may come into contact with this and have a severe um, reaction to it. Um, all MSM uh, and including trans and gender diverse people who have sex with men and a whole range of other communities are eligible. We have about 3,500 doses allocated and I've spent most of this week 
you know, just gently engaging with people who found it really hard to get an appointment. Um, a bit like COVID when we had the vaccine rollout, um, it'll be a bit clunky for a couple of weeks. So I'm just here to remind people to be patient and persistent. Um, this morning, Thorn Harbour Health, our a fellow um, HIV organisation here in Victoria, up on their website at thornharbour.org, um, there's an expression of interest form that you can fill out. So as vaccine becomes more available, they will contact you and let you know that you can come in. It's been very um, patchy. So um, uh, there's kind of four centres, high caseload clinics, including Northside Clinic, Paran Market Clinic, Centre Clinic, which is associated with Thorn Harbour Health. Um, and those doses are slowly coming in in dribs and drabs. So it's been a, a little bit of a, a challenge in this first couple of weeks, um, particularly with the information getting out there about the rollout. The actual implementation of it can sometimes run a little bit slower and clunky behind that. And there's a lot of people with high anxiety. Also, other um, community members that will be prioritised are... Uh, MSM who are particularly going to travel in the next three months overseas, they'll be right high at the priority list because the outbreaks in particularly North America and Europe um, are, are pretty severe. So those priority populations will be key and, and stand in first line. And of course, 21,500 doses are arriving in the country sometime in September. Yeah, and then another big lot in December. So the idea, and, and look, you've got to acknowledge, considering that we didn't have any stock of this, the rapid kind of resolve of the government to move, um, I think needs to be acknowledged and um, our community um, should be really thankful for the quick action that they've gone to try and locate these vaccinations and put those orders in as production around the world starts to step up for this vaccination. Of course, the one they're using is a relatively new vaccine. Yeah. What do we know about its efficacy? Uh, it's really good. Um, so for HIV, HIV positive people, the suggestion to get the most benefit out of it is to have a booster at least four weeks after your initial um, vaccination shot. Um, and uh, so it's... Um, it's quite effective in a whole lot of ways and certainly can reduce the severity of illness. And I know that there are some doses that are set aside for people that may have been exposed or for uh, people who may be um, living with somebody who's been exposed to monkeypox. And it can be used in the same way that we use PEP as a post-exposure drug as well. So if people do become infected with it, and I strongly suggest um, to our listeners that if they do believe that they have come in contact with somebody with the virus, to reach out and engage with their GP or to Melbourne Sexual Health and um, kind of call ahead so people can prepare, so you can be taken care of in the safest way. And um, yeah, go in because that vaccine will also reduce the severity and the length of um, infection. So it's two doses, at least 28 days yep. apart. And that at the moment will be dependent on the amount of vaccine that we have. Like I said to you, it's coming in in dribs and drabs. It won't um, necessarily reduce the effectiveness if it's a bit longer than that 28 days, but um, it's best to have a booster for HIV positive people. And should positive people have their booster close to 28 days? I, 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 I sense there's, or I've heard that there's more, there's more, um, uh, I guess, you know, need for them to have it closer to the 28 days. Or yeah, is that and not particularly the, the follow-up booster. Yeah. It's really, really important because um, the efficacy for people who might be immunosuppressed um, is a whole lot better with that second dose. And I know that um, a lot of work's been done um, engaging with uh organisations across the globe, including in San Francisco, where they've been kind of doing 
one dose, uh, but two doses for HIV positive people. So just to ensure that we've got the maximum protection that we can and the maximum efficacy from that vi- uh, from that vaccination. Of course, the Biden administration has been criticised for being too slow to react to monkeypox. There's been criticisms that there aren't enough vaccines available in the US for demand. Uh, there's fears that case numbers have got out of control. Uh, there's been criticism that vaccines aren't being made available in developing countries. Mm. Um, it sounds like in Australia we haven't kind of hit that space yet where the government needs to be criticised like the Biden administration mm. is. is that no, no, I don't think so. I think they've reacted pretty quickly. To be honest, as I was saying before, and um, we should feel very grateful that there's been a very rapid response. I think particularly with the focus coming on World Pride in 2023 in Sydney, there was um, an added urgency because we will have a lot of overseas travellers coming into the country for that fantastic celebration and event. Um, uh, And it's about getting ahead of the game, I think, from the government's point of view to ensure that we have the highest coverage um, because it's not a very pleasant thing to go through. So 450,000 doses Mm. have been ordered for Australia. That's really interesting about World Pride in Sydney in 2023 with people coming from overseas. Of course, they won't have Medicare cards. Um, I guess we don't know yet what the government's policy is going to be about vaccinating overseas visitors. No, I don't think so. All the requirements for that either for entry, we're we're not sure. I'm sure those things will be worked out. We're very early in our response. And I guess that's the other thing I just wanted to do today. There's a lot of hysteria around it and particularly the stigma and the name itself. I know that Living Positive Victoria has decided, even though we did one uh, monkeypox article on our website, um, we've decided to not use that term and we're just calling it MPXV, as you will also see on Thorn Harbour Health and other websites as well, just to kind of move away. And um, I was a bit disappointed to see the World Health Organisation open up a competition to change the name. And apparently the number one suggestion now is Poxy McPockface, which is just, do you know what I I mean, it's like someone takes some leadership and just make a decision internally and, and kind of send that stuff out there because it's not not very helpful. Um, and at, to say what you were saying before too, it is a global problem. Um, uh, monkeypox was kind of endemic in Central and West Africa and um, over the last couple of years, as with everywhere, you know, everything's ground to a halt, including some vaccination programs um, across those countries and everything else. And all of a sudden, it's kind of got into urban areas and kind of, as a result, flown out. So so you think changing the name or calling it its other name, its more technical name, you think yeah. that actually removes the stigma? Oh, maybe it might be a bit late now because we've seen it wall to wall. And, you know, today's media is even different than it was uh, 30 years ago. Everything's about that clickbait and the headline and the more outrageous you can get and the more kind of controversial you can get, the likelihood that someone's going to click on that for the information. And I guess the other message I want to get out today is when we do see information come out, um, I'll refer people to uh, the department. Health Department of Victoria, health um, their health website there. Um, they have great information that they'll be updating fortnightly. So currently we have 36 cases in Victoria. Um, there have been a couple of local transmission, but the contact tracing has been really, really quick. Uh, if you do come in contact with that and you test positive for monkeypox, you're asked to um, self-isolate for 21 days, which is a big effort when we think about um, the... 
uh, kind of stressing everything that people have been through over the last couple of years. It's a big call, but organisations like Thorn Harbour Health and ourselves will be around to support people and ensure that their needs are met if they are required to self-isolate for that period. So that infrastructure is in place, not yeah. just from the uh, HIV-like surge of cases days in the 80s when that great contact tracing infrastructure was put in place, but also from COVID. Yeah. It is. And I hope that we've learnt the lessons, some of the lessons from COVID and they'll be applied across um, this situation and intervention. I think one of the most um, things that I still find concerning is we know that through COVID it was those communities at the margins, multicultural communities, other people um, that may not have English as their first language and trying to engage um in that framework has been really challenging for them and I hope we've learnt a few lessons and then it's not just uh, white gay men that are kind of at the front of the queue because of their strong health literacy and kind of connectedness into the system. So um, I'm sure that there'll be some messaging going out and um, I think we are in the infancy of the response now. I've found it a little bit frustrating to kind of navigate this space myself, even with all the experience that we have. Um, But I just want to assure people that we are really committed to kind of working with government and working with our sector partners to get the best result we can for our community. Well, Living Positive Victoria does have that expertise, does have that, you know, epidemic response, mm-hmm. you know, from a lived perspective, very much in in in, in place. Um, is the government reaching out enough to, to your organisation, do you think, to kind of, you know, learn from that expertise? I think everyone's kind of racing at the moment and it's kind of like every say um, that's why the fortnightly updates are really important via the health department website because I think some of the information that you put out you know today may necessarily be redundant in two weeks with growing information and it's a really rapidly moving area around um, monkeypox infection and risk and um, outcomes for people but um, we're also advocating very strongly um, via our channels to have a similar framework around um, the COVID response because 21 days for some people I think there's a whole range of assumptions about um, because you might have travelled overseas that you might have the capacity to be off work for 21 days and a whole range of other issues and we're kind of um, gently encouraging um, an examination of potential you know wage support or things for people who may be required and um, because we don't want the same barriers that we saw in COVID where people were not necessarily testing or you know putting up their their rat test onto the website and everything else because they were fearful that they couldn't stop working and that would impact them significantly financially we don't want to kind of go around those kind of roads again so we're working gently um to try and uh, get a framework around what kind of support and systems that we can have and of course the other concern is co-infection with covid and uh, I don't want to call it monkeypox, but I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be a huge burden, wouldn't it? A huge yes, it health would. burden. And, and look, um, and with flu and everything that's going around this year too, I think almost everybody I know has had a good dose of it this year. And um, some of the symptoms um, of monkeypox infection are, are hauntingly familiar. Um, they're flu-like symptoms. They're fatigue. They're um, you know nausea, headache, a whole range of other things. And this can happen before you get any kind of physical sighting. Um, of infection and um, it varies from person to person so someone might get a very severe reaction uh, while other people may just have small lesions like pimples and other things like that so we're learning more and more about it and um, 
uh, you know, it's kind of depressing to say, but now that it actually is affecting people in the Western world, we'll probably learn a lot more about it very, very quickly. Yeah, that kind of medical racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, the lack of government support for people who have tested positive to monkeypox can be a disincentive uh, for people to test and isolate. Yeah, we hope not. Uh, and really, uh, those people with severe illness will certainly know. And, well, that's the uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, they will need to go in. And I, I encourage anyone who's listening um, who feels that they may have been exposed not to hesitate to go in. I know that there's a lot of hysteria around it and everything like that and a lot of stigma that might be associated with it. But the sooner that you get in contact and get a diagnosis and get that care. So um, even though we're saying that people are asked to um, self-isolate for 21 days, there's a whole lot of wraparounds support that will come with that um, from our community organisations and also from government departments. We don't just say, go home and close the door. There'd be a lot of follow-up to check in on those people's condition and and to make sure that they're travelling all right psychologically as well. So where is the hysteria coming from? Like you've obviously picked up on it. I just think it's that sinking feeling that we had, um, particularly when um, it's primarily impacting men who have sex with men. I know that, um, and when we talk about social media and clickbait, like I was talking about before, even in mainstream media, where it's relatively balanced, the articles and things like that, you'll see the commentary underneath, and it is vile. It's just as bad as what we probably faced 35 years ago with HIV and AIDS. But uh, what's worse is that it's so accessible now so you know all of a sudden you've got 300 comments under an article with all kinds of you know people just feel really free on social media to say the most horrendous things about why our money is being spent to support these disgusting promiscuous people and the same kind of things that we kind of faced 35 years ago and that's what I was talking about around that kind of Uh, stigma trigger and just gently working our community through it and reminding us of our own resilience and reminding us of our history and ability to work together to kind of overcome any of these challenges. Um, Like I said, there's only 36 cases in Victoria at the moment. So in some ways, the bigger picture and the fear of what might be coming down the road can sometimes impact on people's perception and engagement around the issue. And I encourage everyone to, as I said at the top of the interview, just to um, be persistent and be patient because we are doing the best we can to get that vaccine vaccine out to all affected populations. And I guess one of the concerns is if it does spread into the broader community, that becomes fodder for the far right, mm. doesn't it? To yeah. stir up anti-queer, yeah. homophobic yeah. hysteria like we had during the Grim Reaper days, yeah. but also kind of like what's happening in, in parts of the US uh, with the Republican Party yeah. really all around yeah. the country there, but also in Eastern Europe in countries like Hungary and Poland. Yeah, and the the focus, because of the disproportionate impact on men who have sex with men, I think there's a dangerous downside with that focus, as we saw with HIV in this country. You know, um, more than 30% of the members of my organisation aren't LGBTIQA plus people. They're heterosexual men and heterosexual women who maybe didn't believe that they were at risk in the same way as gay men were. And um, so we've got this undercurrent of people not thinking they're at risk and uh, potentially that exposure um, kind of impacting the broader community in the way that it has with HIV. And of course, it's not a sexual 
sexually transmitted disease. It can be, yeah. but it's really just close physical contact and even sharing bedding. Yeah, it is. And, and it's all that stuff about clothes and bedding and washing that. But that, again, when I was talking about those stigma triggers, that comes back to those horrible conversations that we had in the 80s and early 90s about cups and saucers and sharing plates and spoons and, you know, those really basic messages that, that need to be reinforced. And I'm sure that will come as part of this as we get to know a little bit more about it. Um, um, so I, I think it's really, really important to stay abreast of reliable information. So go to Thorn Harbour Health's website, go to Living Positive Victoria's website, and primarily go to the health department's website as those um, updates will happen every fortnight. Um, and I said to you, they probably won't happen more than that because um, some of that information becomes redundant very quickly as we learn more and more and more. And, you know, from what I've read, household transmission is, you know, pretty much non-existent, you know, so you don't get it from sharing those cups and sauces. No, you don't. But um, clothing and bedding, particularly that's covered an infected sore or something like that, um, but that can be um, kind of mitigated by hot water washing and a whole range of other things. Similar isolation um, to COVID, wearing a mask and other things like that, because coughing, it can be in saliva and other things like that. So it's about probably following the same principles that we had with COVID. If you lived in a share house and other things like that, you know, you just isolate yourself pretty much from the rest of the other people around you. And that support and guidance will be provided by the department if you do, you know, uh, come into contact with monkeypox. But as I said, um, 36 cases in Victoria, it's not out of control at the moment, but um, the ability of the government to seek and source um, large amounts of vaccine as it's being as production ramps up across the globe, um, I'm really proud of the fact that they've been out in the front and that we have early access to this before it's out of control. Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria, thank you so much for popping into 3CR and chatting with me today. Thank you. And you're on In Your Face on 3CR, here's Courtney Barnett.
So there you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by Meadow Lucas, whose fabulous exhibition, Impossible Dance, uh, opened yesterday at the Victorian Pride Centre, all about queer community in a pre-COVID world. Meadow, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, James. Tell us about your fabulous photos in the exhibition. Um, Okay, so... A little caveat first, you will have to excuse me if I sound a little bit rough. The celebrations from the opening last night did go on a little bit later than expected. (laughs) Um, So the exhibition's on at the Pride Centre until October, and it uh, includes a range of different photographic works um, 
from a series, a project series, Impossible Dance uh, of mine, which had multiple sites. So once uh, at the substation and um, various other galleries, Brunswick Street Gallery, and they've all come uh, together for this this one, the Impossible Dance uh, definitive edition at the Pride Centre. And I absolutely love the promo photo that I got a copy of, which features the iconic community legend Yvonne Gardner, who passed away in 2018, but a fabulous yep. black and white shot. Thank uh, you. Tell us about that photo uh, with Yvonne. You took it, yeah? Yes, yes. Um, so that was at the very first Slow Dance Social event. Um, I think back in... That might have been 2016, maybe 2015. Uh, don't have the date on the top of my head. But, you know, Yvonne was always so generous, um, especially with photography and being photographed and having a good time. And um, every time I'd see her at an event, um, she was always just really, really generous. But I really love that shot specifically because it's kind of anachronistic. It, it almost looks like it might be from, you know, the 1920s or something. Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And of course, she would have been in her early 70s when that photo was taken. And she was just loving it on the dance floor. Yes, always. Every time she was at an event, she was always having a great time. So tell us about some of the other folks that you photographed. Um, So the the works include images from the past, um, it's just over 15 years of my event photography practice. Um, And they range in... um, from like, you know, trough parties to barber to closets, um, slow dance social events, other community events as well. There's a whole range of different events. So even though they're all black and white, I think a patron last night at the opening said, oh, I thought they were from like the one event. Um, but no, they're from 50, around 15 years and all different kinds of, of queer community events. So they sound quite timeless. Hopefully, I mean, I'm I'm really inspired by William Yang, but also Rennie Ellis, um, and I, that's kind of why I've tried to uh, create these anachronistic, timeless documentation, black and white. Yeah. So they're they're photos that span fifteen years. God, in the queer world, that's quite a few eras, almost. That's certainly straddling <laughs> several. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, time flies. Like it, it feels crazy to go back through my archive, and when I was. Uh, putting the show together in 2020 in lockdown, going through all these kind of external hard drives. It was like, oh, I swear I just shot that yesterday. But then there was, you know, shots from 2012 and it just, it felt really strange. So I I guess time does fly when you're, you know, having fun. So this would have been a really exciting project for you to work on during lockdowns. Uh, It must have been kind of exhilarating, you know, being in this kind of, you know, insular world, but going through these, you know, periods of our history and seeing all these amazing characters, you must have kind of gone down a wonderful rabbit hole with it all yeah it was it was kind of bittersweet because at the time you know during lockdown i was really missing you know going out to parties and photographing community and being in connection with community so it was a bit of a a a way to survive that isolation um and that quarantine so it kind of had a bit of a bittersweet edge but what came about was this amazing um celebration and just being able to go wow you know i've shot a lot of incredible events and photographed a lot of beautiful people and and have all these great moments. So let's try and share them back out with the community. Wow. So you must have relived a lot of feelings. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, like, actually putting, curating the shots together and which ones would be printed, uh, what shots 
um, you know, ne- never need to see the light of day or what need to be needs to be printed as a giant banner um, was a pretty emotional thing. It, it really, it was, um, yeah, very moving to do that. So tell us about some of those emotions. I mean, some of them would have been great and some of them would have been kind of a bit, there would have been some grief. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, the Yvonne one's a really great example because, um, you know, unfortunately she did pass and everyone has uh, such great memories of her. And this this image in itself, um, you know, it's a moment where she's sitting down but she's dancing still. She has her arm up in the air and she's looking down. But she almost has a furrowed brow, so there's sort of a push and pull between celebration and mourning. Um, so it is that that kind of, yeah, bit of sweetness of, oh, I remember this party before that venue got shut down, or I remember this event before that venue got turned into apartment blocks. So there's there's always this kind of sweet um, but sad nostalgia. Um, but in terms of, you know, fun and rocket, the, the photography does include some um, salacious <laughs> images. I call them tasteful nudes from the dance floor um, as well. So there is a, there is a fun element to the to the show wow what a great part of our history and i'm sensing uh, you know parts of our lost queer history as well uh which people are really looking at pretty closely at the moment because we have lost so much we've lost you know so many people but also so many spaces yes definitely and that's the other thing um i feel really privileged to be able to document and keep a, a growing living archive of our queer spaces and queer parties like events that maybe pop up for a year or two and then disappear. So, yeah. So how many photos are there in your Impossible Dance exhibition? Um, okay, so there's six large-scale banners, larger-than-life, overwhelmingly huge two-metre-by-two-metre two banners. There's two smaller banners and then there's four framed works. And then last night at the launch, I was uh, giving away free little six-by-four kind of happy snap black and whites for patrons to take. So if there's any left down at the Pride Centre, people are, are welcome to take the smaller ones that are scattered around, but I think they all might be gone. So those banners, do they have lots of little photos on them? No, no. So each large banner only has um, one image on them. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it's a very uh, curated selection of images and it's it's not a definitive um, exhibition. So I imagine, obviously, as my uh, photography event um, archive grows, obviously, Impossible Dance might continue in another 10 years. There might be a, another um, version of this with different shots. Well, yeah, this just sounds like, you know, a drop in the bucket of the number of photos that you actually have. It sounds like you're kind yeah. of seeing on a vault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can't, you know, print and exhibit them all in one go. I have to have to, you know, trickle it out for the years to come. <laughs> so how tough that must have been to decide on which photos to run with? Yes, incredibly difficult. But luckily we had, you know, seven lockdowns. So <laughs> Yeah, you had a lot of time to kind of go over them. Now, look, I've got to ask, who else is photographed? Who else is in this exhibition apart from Yvonne? Oh my God, there's so many people. And what's really funny is when we were look, we were hanging the show and Thomas Jaspers um, actually just was like, oh, I think that's the back of my head in one of the photos and realised he was accidentally in one of the artworks from like 2014 or 2015. But, um, you know, Betty Grumble features uh, performing. There's 
Oh, God. There's um, Lazy Susan, drag queen backstage. Um, there's some anonymous characters. There's Rogan Richards is in one one shot as well. Um, there's a whole range. And I'm sure, like, the more time you spend kind of looking through, you go, oh, I remember that person. Or I think that's blah, blah, blah. Gee, you must have some great stories about being a photographer on the scene. Uh, yeah, great and also locked away in the vault. <laughs> Never to be told. <laughs> Never to see the light of day. So, Mello, I've got to ask, what's your favourite photo in Impossible Dance? Oh, it's really hard. There's a lot that I'm very proud of. One of the images, the smaller images that's framed on the far wall, um, the booth wall at the Pride Centre, um, it won the Picturing Footscray Prize, photo prize in 2018, and it's a test shot I did at a party at Littlefoot Bar and Kitchen. They ran a party called Westgate. And I had just walked in and I was doing a lighting test with my flash. And that is the test shot to test my light. But it's just so... Um, there's a lot going on in it. <laughs> there's a lot of expressions and there's a lot of characters. And your eyes kind of dart around each person. And I think I really, I really love that shot a lot. Gee, you must have been to so many venues over the years as a seed photographer at very wee hours of the morning, but also yeah. during the day at day parties. What's your favourite ever event? Oh, God, I do love a day party. If I can get home before 10 and just be in bed, I mean, that's the age I'm getting to now. I, I love a day party. But there's been, I mean, each event, it's, it's such a strange you know, I've got to be in the right mentality to have a great time whilst photographing, but, you know, I can't be too tired if I think it's a good event, all that stuff. But I really like those events that you just don't expect something random to occur. Like, I, I loved shooting for Barber for the last 10 years, their parties. They would always have great performers on. Um, uh, James Andrews and um, Benjamin Hancock would always be dressed up in these outrageous kind of Huxley's outfits and I think that's really special at like 2 a.m. on a in a nightclub, uh, getting something very strange and absurd. I think that's fun. Is there any particular party that you wish would come back? Oh God, um, come back! I mean, I always love closet parties. They've been running for a long time, and they're really inclusive. They're always really fun. It feels very safe. Um, so I love a closet party. I will always put my hand up to shoot closet. But any parties that I mean, I miss. I already miss um, Club Eighty and, and Trough. I feel like that was a very specific um, era in time, and that that taught me a lot. Shooting that event, and you know about respectability and and privacy of patrons, and shooting nudes without shooting you know frontal nude, kind of uh, lending your lens to. Um, nudity without being too obnoxious. It was a really challenging gig, but it actually taught me a lot. So I, I really do miss Trough. Yeah, absolutely. I miss Trough as well. Do you really find yeah. that Club 80 is that venue that you miss the most? Because it is apartments now. Yeah, and it's so tragic. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But there's others as well. I mean, we lost the glass house, you know, years yeah. ago, and that's you know, just one of the, you know, iconic venues that we lost, but also basically the golden 50 metres on Commercial Road is gone. Yeah, completely. And when I first actually moved to Melbourne, that was, you know, where I first would go out, down, you know, Market and um, Priscilla's and all of those venues on Commercial. And even, you know, the Greyhound, the largest 
drag stage um, in Melbourne is now an empty lot too. So all of these kind of important spaces being gentrified and knocked down to be uh, turned into apartments or whatever it is, is such a physical manifestation of us losing our history or losing um, connection. And that's also why I think the Pride Centre is pretty amazing to have a venue uh, a funded venue just for the community where, you know, I can exhibit, which is amazing. There's a theaterette, there's a, a bar going in and a cafe. Here's my hyenas is, is there. So it's it's pretty overwhelmingly amazing. But it's not the same as seedy clubs. No, <laughs> I mean, once they open a dingy nightclub, I will be there every day. <laughs> <laughs> so how did we get to this point, matter where we lost all of these venues? Is it just the case of, you know, areas being gentrified and greedy developers offering people just, you know, way too much money to refuse? Or is there something else at work? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm only 34, but I do think that... Um, like our digital lives has led queer people, younger queer people to feel a lot more secure and safe in connecting with each other online. And I feel like that's the loss of physical space. I think we're, we're seeing people appreciate physical space more after COVID, after being isolated and having to be, you know, doing our, our gay parties on Zoom. It's not the same, but I feel like, yeah, gentrification always, um, you know, kills artists kills uh, immigrants, kills teachers, and kills queer people. Yeah, absolutely. And we're losing that physical touch from the venues as well, from a crowded dance floor. Yes, and I love a sweaty, crowded dance floor. Absolutely. So when you take photos, what's the what's the venue that you still love, that you still are able to go to and kind of, you know, club away at while you take oh, the pics? God. Is there one? Is, um, does that I mean, still exist? I always, sorry? Does that still exist? Yeah, I mean, I always have a glass of Prosecco in one hand and the camera in the other. So that's, that's my method of shooting. But there's so many, like, um, there's lots of little parties or one-night kind of spaces at the moment. Um, I think Love Break has just started. It's like a one once-a-week party um, on Smith Street. And, you know, for a short time there, Rainbow House Club was pretty phenomenal and at the top of it, its game. Um, it really championed people of colour and trans people, and it felt like a real safe place. I, I shot for Rainbow for a while, and that was amazing. But um, I don't know. I mean, that's a, a t- there's plenty of incredible venues and pop-up spaces, but yeah. So, Matt, what other projects are you working on? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're going to be resting on your laurels. There must be something else in the pipeline. Uh, yeah, I've got a, I mean, I'm I'm a classic over... Worker, so I, I lecture casually. Um, I am working on multiple kind of projects. I, back in you know when I was studying, I remember my mentor saying you should be working on six paintings at the same time. So when you come back to the first painting, the paint's dry and you're ready to keep going. And that's kind of my philosophy with with art and with projects. So there's always a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So come on, tell us what else is boiling away. Oh, God, I've got one brain cell firing right now, Jane. <laughs> um, it sounds like it was a huge night, night last night. Sorry? It sounds like it was a huge night last night. It was. It was a great, like, after, it was huge. It was really beautiful. Um, incredible event. And then we kept going with the celebration. So I feel a little bit on the crustier side, sorry. But, um, God, what am I working? There's plenty. There's plenty I'm working on. But, you know, I'm a an Instagram um you know, I'm on there all the time. So if people follow my Instagram, I always promote 
what's happening and what's coming up and things like that. Fantastic. Well, Mello Lucas, you should be very proud of Impossible Dance. It is showing at the uh, Victorian Pride Centre in St Kilda until October. Uh, it's a fabulous uh, photo exhibition of queer community in a pre-COVID world. Mello, thanks so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Mello Lucas there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Jamiroquai.
wrapped there with Train taking us out his milk and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. I'm on this train I'm on this train I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train Blind man singing those songs of praise Grooving down the carriage to the beat of his cane Fill up his cup, he'll bless your name I'm on this train I'm on this train I'm on this train I'm on this, train. I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train On this train Mischief on this man train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train. On this red lines closed at Canal and Church. White smoke spurting from a hole in the dirt. Peace train stroll on a goddamn word. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground. I'm on this train, I'm on this train, I'm on this train, I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train, and I'm on this train, 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 I'm on this train. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.